Oh, you are? Yeah, this year the Hall of Fame is different because they're accepting four people that are going to throw two out, and I think they don't decide which two until tomorrow. Okay. The Hall of Fame, right? That's a great idea. What is? Decanonization. Yeah. We haven't started recording yet. Well, well, we can, but I mean, can you decanonize something? I think Terry's joking. (laughs) I think it's a great idea. Oh, come on. I can think of a few things we could consider decanonizing. If we what had a choice, decanonize? what would I decanonize? Gosh, that's a tricky one. I'll decanonize Skylarker Space. I would. I went back. Oh, and I that. The first interstellar novel of some popularity. Well, well actually, that's true. You know, Star Trek, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. No forbidden planet. I would decanonize oh. George Lucas for ruining science fiction, but I'm not allowed to do that. I you know. and you and Arlen Skinner and everybody else. <laughs> I haven't read a Star Wars book. Oh, that's true. <laughs> well, I wrote, I, I, my history of Star Wars, I wrote two Star Wars books that's and right. went out a three-book contract and got fired. Because <laughs> 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 they had to do too much work on them after to mm. put them in line. With but, them. you know, they, 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 I mean, Karen Travis has written a couple of Star Wars books. They're pretty good. Yeah. Uh, she's a good writer, started off and decided she wanted to make some money. I mean, who can blame her? Should we, Jonathan, we have no idea. We never have any idea what we're going to talk about. Should we just start? We have. Oh, we I'm have gonna, started? I'm going to lounge you. <laughs> well, if, if you're relaxed, I, I mean, I can say, good, you know, good morning, Gary. Uh, good evening, Jonathan. And good evening to Terry Bisson and to Greg Bear, who are joining us on the podcast this evening. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful morning here, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, are, we, we should explain we are in Seattle where there are multiple things going on this time of year. There is a Clarion West uh, Writers' Workshop, which we now have, have a family interest in, it turns out, in this room. Yeah. Uh, there is the Locus Award Ceremony, and there is a Science Fiction Hall of Fame Induction Ceremony. Okay. Uh, both of which are happening tomorrow, so tomorrow is going to be chaos. Yeah. yeah, the Hall of Fame is going to go through transition. We're not actually going to be able to get into the Hall of Fame this year, uh, next year, it's going to be a major portion of the downstairs area where the old science fiction museum used to be, and it'll be much expanded. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, what do you mean we don't get into the whole thing? Well, the museum itself is now broken up and spread around. They've decided to move parts out and change it, so the it's avatar not- exhibit is in the old science fiction. So, you mean the, the induction, like we're going to put Harlan's corpse out on the street? <laughs> That's... Well, one of the things that... We're putting them in carbonite. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, so, the not... But we should be explaining to people who haven't been to Seattle that a giant uh, Frank Gehry structure... I'm looking out the, the window of this hotel room at the Space Needle, which is a great Frank R. Paul thing. And then, there, and then there's a museum itself. It occurs to me the one thing Frank R. Paul never imagined was Frank Gehry. That doesn't look like anything out of it. No, it's more like a Scherner illustration. Right. What, the museum? The museum. Yeah. We're looking at it. Well, I understand the museum was designed to look like Dale Earnhardt's car after the crash. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, it, it is the... It's one of the most photographed buildings in Seattle because when the sun hits at different angles during the day in the golden hour, it can be utterly devastating and beautiful uh-huh. in parts. And then you stand back from it and you wonder what it is, but when you're right up next to the parts, it's spectacular. And um, again, for just tourist background, the, I guess half the museum, or maybe more than half, is the Experience Music Project, which is things like Jimi Hendrix's guitar. It's and all going to be called Experience. It's all going to be called EMP, and then they're adding on the SF and the pop culture aspect. Oh, okay. So yeah, they've uh, they've kind of de-emphasized the science fiction museum for the time being. But when, when the museum, when I first went to the museum, I was very impressed because what I was expecting. Uh, were Star Trek uniforms, and there were some of those, and model spaceships. I thought it was going to be entirely a movie museum. And there were displays, there were manuscripts, there were displays of first editions of writers. There was a substantial amount. And Greg, you're on the board of this or something. So I, I suspect you may have had something to do with the fact that they actually have print literature. No, no, no. Anymore. That was uh, that was mandated from the very beginning. Okay. The whole history of science fiction. So well, all we did was supply it. them with perspective on what to put. And Paul had a collection, Paul Allen had this collection, right. fabulous collection. Not only every paperback known to man, every pulp known to man, and the science fiction fantasy, and, but he also had first editions, some of which we could not possibly afford it. Oh, I can imagine. Beautiful first editions. He also had the manuscript for Skylark of Space. 
Oh, wow. With the edits done by <laughs> by Doc Smith on it. And uh, that was the first first time I've seen that. Man, that was a prominent display. And <laughs> point out to people that this was the first Interstellar, popular mm -hmm. Interstellar novel. Well, I remember going there um, probably five or six years ago. And I'm not from Seattle and don't have anything to do with the museum, but I was impressed with the book cover. It had all, a lot of old paperback yeah. book cover. Yeah. And to me, that's what science fiction was. It's yeah. not it's not movie sets, it's not uniforms, it's they not even Star stuck Trek. in a small wooden bookshelf with, a, with an assorted variety of paperbacks and hardcovers of science fiction of no particular value. Uh -huh. Just to show the typical bookshelf collection. Right, and SF to me is a rack sized paperback with a rocket chip on it. Right? Yeah. I mean, right. that so should be purchased in liquor stores in those circular racks. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe Ballantyne. Yeah. Probably Ballantyne, in fact, if you're back in the 50s. I, I remember one of the things that then, and we're all kind of close to the same generation, which is unfortunately slightly older than you are, Jonathan, but <laughs> you get you a couple of decades after you. But I remember the first time I became aware of a publisher yeah. when I recognized what a Valentine paperback looked like as opposed to a Signet paperback. I'm sure, they're not very different books. And the Ten Powers, but the, the, not the, the typography, certainly it was the, the Richard not, the Richard Powers, I'm sorry, the Richard Powers, <laughs> the, those Tangi-like paintings, and, and some bizarre design things, the sideways cover on Arthur Clarke's uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. short story. That's some great stuff. Um, yeah, and now back then a paperback could be expected to sell a minimum of 100,000 copies. Mm -hmm. Right. To people that had never heard of the author, only wanted the rocket ship on the cover. Right. And um, a lot of that worked. Yeah. But back then, Valentine was also offering up to $5,000 for rights to their books. Now, I've been trying to cost out what $5,000 was in 1953. Right. But it was a substantial income. It was, you know, at least a third of the price of the house. Oh yeah, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but well, but, but I, then, if you were selling a hundred thousand copies of of your books today, wouldn't you get quite a substantial advance from the publisher? You, you would be a bestseller today. Yeah. The sales, certainly on mass market paperbacks, have dropped down to very minimal levels and have been for the last ten years. And mm. you know, uh, one reason that is because when I got in the business, not as a writer, but I worked as an editor at Berkeley and Ace yeah. back in the late seventies. Right. And and I was part of the generation, I guess, that moved science fiction out of mass market and into trade and hardcover mm -hmm. and thought this was a good thing, mm -hmm. you know. And actually it was, in many ways, it was kind of disastrous because it meant that uh, all the numbers went down. People right. only bought writers that they knew. They only bought them in bookstores. They no longer bought them in drugstores and bus stations. And they were no longer distributed by cable news, which was a newsstand operation. They were distributed uh -huh. through... Mm -hmm. Stores. So I'm not saying that would kill the field, but it was um, it changed it. In a, yeah, it gave it gave it much more uh, profile, higher profile, right? In terms of reviews and notice, mm -hmm. uh, the books probably sold. Our covers probably sold about as many as they do now. Yeah. Then. About no, it, between it, three and twenty thousand would be a good range for a hardcover in yeah. the sixties and seventies. Fifteen hundred for double day. So a, yeah. lot of the, a lot of the Doubleday books published in the 60s are quite rare now. Yeah, they brought you $2,500, right? The Doubleday? Uh, something yeah. like that. Maybe less. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, and, and a good paperback sale would be $1,500 to $3,000. And that would be your, your fee for, for selling a book. At the, at the end, when I got into it about 1979, that was what I got through. Uh -huh. Yeah, when I, the last mass market book I did was in about 81 or two. And it shipped fifteen thousand dollars, and I mean fifteen thousand. <laughs> Tom Darty hadn't spoken to me since, <laughs> and I, I wasn't entirely to blame, you know. But uh, it was that that period was over. That period was over when science fiction was sold just as it was sort of a generic thing. It had a certain cover. You knew what to look for. Mm. You go. You didn't go to a bookstore. You went to the bus. Well, that was the thing. Uh, the, 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 and somebody explained. It probably was was Tom uh, was explaining that one of the reasons the romance genre took over was because when the point of distribution became supermarkets and drugstores and places where women were more likely to go than men, uh, the the romance. This, Harlequin was one of the first publishers to get into supermarkets, and. Apparently, back in the fifties, cigar stores and commuter stations, which is one of the reasons that the places that men would go to would sell lots of westerns and lots of men's adventure magazines, not 
not the Playboy kinds of magazines, but the real men magazines. Yeah. And those genres have just disappeared now. Artisy. Yeah. yeah, I used to work for those magazines. And I worked with true I worked for True Romance. Uh, I was probably the last generation that worked there. That's where I learned mm -hmm. editing, True Romance. And that was McFadden Bartel. Connie wrote uh, for those uh, uh, confession magazines. Who? Connie Will so that she learned to plot with those things. Oh yeah, she, she told me that. that. But Connie's yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's many cozy HBO-style movies, TV series, and everything to be based on this. Mad men, mad writers, mad uh, mad women. Yeah. You know, just go on and on. Because really, we look back on that now, that is kind of the golden age of the paper book. Was right. back when you actually had, you know, it goes probably starting in the 1920s for America. Yeah. Uh, when you had the, the ability to have groupies because you were a Scribner's office. Or to have, you know, Max Perkins as your editor. And then you could go to New York cocktail parties right. and they'd be the very most elite and you could be a top celebrity. Then you could go out to Hollywood and write for them. Then you could go back to Oxford, Mississippi and, mm -hmm. and stay home. All of that stuff is part of the romance now. And now it's uh, such a huge business. And yet it's declining. It's a sort. declining business and I think that glamour you're talking about but is gone. The electronic book has suddenly taken over, and uh, my most recent book sold as many copies on electronic as it did in hardcover, and the publishers are happy, because they make a lot more profit off the electronic. There's no well, that's a big issue. Why should the publishers be making such a huge profit when they're doing less work? Why shouldn't they ought to be getting the 70% royalty? Uh, well, that's, that's where it may all be heading, but right now, the publishers are still putting out major uh, promotions yeah. and stuff like that. They're, they're, they're making people know the book is out there. So you get a point right. of sale in space. Right. The other thing, I don't want to sound like a, a, a top of the, um, <laughs> the corporate interest, but a book still has to be copy edited. You know? Right. Yeah. And copy editing and, and designing and all that is a bigger cost than uh, production, according to the... Not more than the writer, but sure. it is more no, but if you're talking to like a good friend of mine is putting a lot of her backlist out on ebooks right now, that work's already been done and paid for when the book originally came yeah, out. Yeah, who's this good friend? Cecilia? Cecilia, yeah. <laughs> I've been to Cecilia a lot. She, we're yeah, talking Cecilia. Cecilia saying, get going, man. Get Absolutely. Going. Cecilia's a perfect choice for this because she has great big historical novels, she has science fiction, yeah. she's got all of this. And she's got a following, yeah. which they're glad yeah. to have for ebook. Yeah, and Cecilia has a. You know, we all have a backlist, but Cecilia has a really impressive. Very impressive. The books that were published by Kanaf and Viking right. back in the day. And, you know. Well, a lot of those books still have sales potential. The publishers couldn't get them out through the bookstores because right. what had happened was, and I've heard this from other editors and so on, is that the, the publishers learned how to sell the bookstores, not how to sell readers. Right. Yeah. Back in the day, you still had the coupons on the back of the book where you could buy directly from the publisher, uh -huh. and they would send them to you. I never heard of that. Oh yeah, look, read, get an old days paperback and you know look mm -hmm. at the backlist and then send thirty five cents to and receive a catalog and your book a book of your choice. Ah. Valentine Bantam, you know Bantam would say send a bunch of books to troops overseas. You know send two dollars mm -hmm. to Bantam Books and we will ship a bunch of books overseas. There's all these sort of promotion things. And, and, uh, but with uh, this might be part of what you were talking about with the rise of the hardcover, then it became a more elite proposition. Uh, but it was the 60s and the 70s, too, and then the 80s. Yeah. By the time you hit the 90s and 95, you had the end of the widespread distributor. Right, distribution. Yeah. And that was a disaster for a lot of science fiction. Suddenly, the mass market paperback was doomed. Because then it had to only go through books. But, but, I mean, one of the arguments I've heard in favor, again, defending, a, a, well, not corporate interest, but certainly defending the ebook is that when mass market paperbacks first appeared in 1939 and 1940, the appeal was that they were disposable. Right. You know, you'd buy it, uh, get on the train ride, and throw it out at the end. And it wasn't very heavy. It wasn't very right. heavy. And now, literally, it wasn't against the law. Exactly. And, you, and, and, and that's why uh, some of those early paperbacks uh, are hard to find these days. They were like the pulp magazine. Now, what is more disposable than an e-book? Uh, essentially, it has all of the advantages. Of and yet, you never get rid of it. Yeah, well, never <laughs> <away. You don't laughs> Isn't the problem with an ebook though that there's no distribution channel? I mean, there was a really established distribution channel for the mass market paperback back in the day. Now there's just a hell of a lot of ebooks. Yeah, and, and in fact, the ebooks are going to be kind of like uh, uh, music, you know, individual music based. Yeah. And yet, yeah. there are a lot of possibilities to sell 
without even going through a publisher, uh -huh. and to make a living, because all you need to sell is ten to 20,000 e-books, and suddenly you're making as much money as you ever would have off of a decent writing career. If you're charging you know, five to 10 bucks a piece, and you're getting 70% of the income, might as well quit teaching. And well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but but that works if you're already read by people, doesn't it? I mean, the the decline of the paperback market. One of the things you could ask about it is: has it made the science fiction field more conservative? Has it lost the ability to bring new blood in as in the way that it could in the past? Because you could afford to pick up a paperback book cheaply and you know, t you know test an author and see if you like them, as opposed to buying an expensive hardcover. And you had kind of like a distribution channel to do it. Now you, you can pick up. A ebook for a dollar, I guess, if if you wanted to. But you've got to be aware that it exists, and the channels haven't yet formed to make it, you know, possible for you to be aware that it does exist. Well, word of mouth on the internet is a pretty powerful thing, and, and the fact is, you just have to get into that bird flocking behavior, and then you've got it. Getting there is the tough thing because there's so many millions of distractions. You've got so much competition. Uh -huh. But that's, there's a new writer, but as I say, both of you have backlists that uh, which could sell fairly well. Do it fairly well. But the but the fact is, to get in as a new writer, mm -hmm. you have to either go through a publisher, yeah. get noticed, go mm -hmm. through the usual channels for the time being. But there are writers, uh, and Cory Doctor was one of the pioneers on this, right. who can basically promote his own books because he's a celebrity on the web. Right. But yeah, but he like Cecilia's point, which I think is right. And she's talking strictly to me. Uh, I mean, she says, "Look, you're not um, you're not a big name, but you're not totally unknown. It's not like you're somebody publishing yourself. So and you can long short stories. You can sell yeah, for a buck each. You can, yeah, you exactly. can put the stuff up there, and and you will be. Able, and I think she's right. I think I just I don't know. I mean, you're lazy. You're scared. I haven't done it yet. How are you doing it, Greg? Are you do you actually well, do you have a publisher for Curtis, this? Curtis, my agent. Started e reads back in 2000. Right, so you know, and I have been talking about oh, so it. You know, with him and John Douglas. Yeah. So, I, I, most of my stuff we got back when publishers let it go. Uh -huh. And so the e rights came back to us. And when we resold them, we held on to the e rights. Okay. So, like 70, 80% of my books, we have the rights for. And so, we're right now, we are uh, working in England now to get, you know, a, a sub license deal. Uh -huh. Is this the Malcolm? Yeah, Malcolm yeah, yeah, he's. He's out trolling for writers. Oh, he's got a lot of writers, yeah. and, and I think it's a pretty interesting deal. And uh, but the whole landscape's going to change, so we have to watch very carefully, and you have to be prepared to dance on a dime to figure out what the what the way is going to be. Because right now, uh, we've been doing uh, uh, Neil Stevenson, Mark Teppo, and I, and a bunch of writers have been doing Mongolia for a year now, uh -huh. and then we find out that suddenly Sony is helping J.K. Rowling do much the same thing. Mm -hmm. Only it's not a homegrown operation. Right. It's going to have all the financing, and something makes big news. Now, what's so, the Mongolia? This is a historical novel set in the 13th century with fantasy elements to it that have uh, been put out over the last year as kind of a serial form. Oh, really? I've got 300,000 words on the web. You subscribe, it costs 10 bucks a year, and you got a chapter every couple of weeks. Oh, really? And you're getting a lot of subscribers. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, now, who uh, writes it? Uh, Neil, uh, I, uh, we got five other writers, including my son Eric. Mark Teppo is our story master. We've got uh, Joe Brassi and uh, Cooper Moo and uh, a whole bunch of others. Uh, so uh, you might as well give a plug and get the website so people. Can... It's www.mongolia.com. Well, there you go. <laughs> or you don't even need that. You just Google Mongolia. And there you go. But yeah, over the, in, in a sense, creating a kind of round-robin serial novel, we've got 300,000 words, and it's going to end up being about 450,000 words by the time we go. And what's going to happen to it when it's done? It well, we're happens. looking for a book publisher right now. Uh -huh. We're taking orders and acceptances. We're taking offers. <laughs> we're hoping for acceptances. Well, we're, I think it's... We're taking offers, and, and uh, again, you know, a book like that is kind of interesting. It's not your typical novel. It's got big headliners on it, right? but it's written good. by a lot of people. Uh -huh. So it's uh, written like a TV show in some respects, and, and, and attending the meetings and, and all this stuff, the story conferences. You guys have like plot meetings. We do, every Sunday. <laughs> so we go fight, fight with swords, practice, and do martial arts, and then we have a plot meeting. Do you have a little trailer on the back lot? Like, you know, <laughs> no, we got, we're actually down in Sanka, the, a circus training school for kids. 
we have an office down there. This is super cool. You know, I don't keep up with the field, so I, 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 I knew nothing about this. This sounds actually like a lot of fun. It's sort of like Game of Thrones, right? And right now, we've been off to New York to help pitch it to people, and we're opening it up as a distribution center because we handle the accounting for all major platforms, all the mobile platforms. We handle uh, uh, all the bookkeeping and everything and work with your software if you're a publisher. Uh -huh. We work with individual authors. You know, our fees are reasonable and our, our skin is, is quite reasonable. So we're trying to go out there and, and basically offer it as a as a turnkey solution for if you want your book to go out and have an interactive audience. Now wait, this isn't the Mongolian though. This no, is this is a pulp. The personal ubiquitous literature platform <laughs> on which the Mongolia is being published. So you're competing with current uh, Richard and John. Not really. E no, because they we're, we're not that. exclusive. As of yet, we're not exclusive. This is, like, this is like open source fiction. Well, it is, except, of course, you keep all the copyright. And, right. and, and we do ask, you know, unless you want to pay a huge fee, because we don't have the staff set up, the writer has to do the promotion and bookkeeping or the, and wow. editing and everything. But they don't do the design and the cover. Well, they probably would, yeah. We could help a little bit on yeah. that. But uh, we, we would expect you to have a staff of people to do that. Because we're going to be treating it like a publisher. Well, and as you mentioned, you and, and you've got some heavy hitters on, on, on your list, which makes this more marketable than it would be to somebody. There's a, there's a number of people who are trying this and actually having some success, and so it's unusual. Some of them are people with no track record whatsoever. Really? Well, because they're on Amazon and they're selling a book for a buck, or a story for a buck, they can sell 10, 15,000 copies, and suddenly they're making... But you're not talking about the Amanda Hawking phenomenon, which is pretty rare. It's probably rare for now, but I don't know. There's, you know, music has found its whole new way of spreading itself around. Mm -hmm. uh, getting the great promotional moments, the, finding the, the, the choke points where you can stand in the highway and wave your sign, everybody will buy you. Yeah, that's becoming more and more rare. What you've got now is 10,000 off-ramps where people go off and explore the territory on their own. And then they tell their friends about it. And so the flocking behavior is really interesting to observe, and I don't know how it's going to all work out, but you're going to have a huge phenomenon still. You're going to have a lot more authors, I think, capable of making a decent living because they can publish themselves, and their onus of self-publishing is not that bad. No, I think that's true, and I think you're right about short fiction and uh, stories and novellas at 99 cents each because you've got the iTunes model already. Sure. Or maybe I don't want the whole album, but I'd like to try this and and I've done this on iTunes. We all have. 99 cents. Who cares if I like it that much? I'll take a, take a, take a look at it. But, but, Jonathan, our e-books are, are in a somewhat different world in Australia, aren't they? That, that it isn't anywhere near as widely developed, I think, as it is in the, in the States. And in fact, I mean... You always hear all the media talking about the, the extent of market penetration, uh, but they're only ever talking about North America. I mean, England is, is starting to catch up now. Australia, it's still, from what I understand, less than 1% of the total market book market. So, uh, you know, no particular reader has been dominant. The Kindle hasn't really penetrated the market here. Amazon haven't been able to make it successful. Um, so... I mean, it'll happen, and the publishers are prepared for it, I think. But so far, you know, you're only just starting to see people walking around with an e-book reader. You're only just starting to see them in uh, you know, stores where you could buy one casually and make it a, you know, a normal part of your reading life. Uh, I mean, I've had one here for f about four years now, but they've been very rare. <laughs> you know, so... No, no, no. Terry, Terry was asking if you guys have cell phones yet, but um, that was me. Um, the uh, the thing I think the next step in this, though, it sounds to me like, is going to be the globalization of that market, because mm -hmm. the fact that uh, well, you basically can't. As I understand, you can't even buy books from Amazon UK there, can you? You have this other. Okay, what you can no, you, you can buy books from Amazon UK if you have a, a UK account. Or if they happen to be carry, carrying books that they have Australian rights to. Now, they have more Australian rights in, in their book collection than Amazon US does. With Amazon US, you can have an account, but it's an international account. And again, they only offer a small frag, fraction of their titles because they have international rights to them. So it's quite common to uh, go and browse the Amazon store to buy a book for your Kindle and be told you can't have it because they don't have rights to let, it, you know, to let you have it. 
in Canada too. And so it's it's really kind of shaking out slowly in some ways. Yeah, it'll take but, five, it'll take five or ten years. Which are in New York. Um, the point was brought up. Well, seventeen percent of your book sales are now electronic. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, that's only seventeen percent. But then the other comment was brought up. But what was it last year? Five percent. Right. Yeah. And so it's the only area in publishing that is growing by leaps and bounds, and that really attracts the attention of the people who do the finance. Well, and my point is that it's growing by leaps and bounds with these limited markets, the, the problems in Canada, the problems in Australia. Jonathan, we should ask our friend and supporter Charles Tan what he can get in the Philippines. Uh, it seems to me within a few years, anybody in the world ought to be able to go on the web and, and download whatever they want. Yeah. And this is simply a matter of working It's out. going to be happening. But again, the author is going to have to learn how to self-promote, self-structure, hire right. talent to do copy editing, hire talent to do covers. Sure. It's going to be kind of a garage mentality. We have a garage, let's put on a show. It could be teams of writers, as we're doing with the Mongolian. There's no reason not to. Right. Because then the story becomes the key thing. Uh, and not any you know illusion of the individual author. Again, more like multimedia television show, gaming type things. Where, mm-hmm. Again, and I don't know to what extent you're going to have media coming into play in, in your books, you know, moving pictures or whatever, illustrations. It's turning out that a lot of readers, at least the current stage of readers, are very interested in an immersive text experience. They don't want all these bells and whistles distracting. Mm. Yeah. So they really like reading books, which is an interesting phenomenon yeah. compared to what we were thinking, what I was thinking 20 years ago. Uh, it turns out that books are a favorite method of absorbing entertainment because it's private mm-hmm. and yeah. it's fun it's quiet. And it's interactive in the way that uh, the interactive gaming isn't, if you right. know what I mean. Right. And you provide the special effects. Exactly. Right. Well, remember the whole thing about the you, you know, you design your own story, you know, it's interactive, sure. negative, and never went anywhere because people want to read a book because there's one captain of the ship and and it's going, you know, they don't want to design. But if you have an environment where socialization, socializing can occur, that's World of Warcraft, and that's right. a billion dollar a year industry. And that's where we meet up here, we play things together, Xbox games, you know, you're mm-hmm. there, with, there with strangers. You're playing games with strangers from around the world and you have to interact and you know, ask questions, mm-hmm. <laughs> cross chat, all that stuff. That's a totally different phenomenon. Books have always had that, but it was always through letters. It was through phone calls. It was through, you know, now, nowadays, with something like the Mongolia, when you've got them on your iPad, mm-hmm. you can actually make a note on it and compare what other people are reading. It's a feature we're going to be offering, mm-hmm. uh, where you can compare what other people are thinking about what you're reading at the moment you're reading. So it becomes a book club. Mm. Right. I'm reading James Joyce right now, let's say. I've got this passage here. I don't have any idea. <coughs> Somebody help me on this. There are four or five other readers around the world reading that passage, or who know, they can get back to you. And then, you know, the, the, the fact is that you, you have the problem of trolls well, coming in, and they're a major problem now, but what we noticed in Mongolia is a ranking system, they drop to the bottom very quickly because people don't find them useful. So they're not censored. They're just way They just disappear. Yeah, they yeah. kind of fall to the earth. What the hell is a troll? That's a person who causes trouble in the long line. Oh, do you, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you have do you have cell phones in Oakland, Terry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, hold on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off and okay. play the party. Uh, great great talk, talk to Jonathan, uh, and we'll chat for a few minutes. Okay, Thank you for coming. My and, pleasure. Thank you. Downstairs. Okay. Farewell. I'm gonna finish my beer, Greg. I'll see you later. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye, Terry. Uh, Bye, Greg. Uh, okay. So now it's uh, it's Terry and me, and we were. One of the points I was making earlier, and Terry and I are both good friends with Cecilia Holland, yep. as you know, who does have a name and does have a backlist, but one of the points I was making to her, and she argued with me, and now she's making this point back to me, is that hmm. if you are a writer, we're not talking about new writers trying to break in, a writer with an established record. Got the new writer. Well, that's pretty much, yeah. Uh, yeah. That by and large, the, the, the bottom line is that readers are willing to pay to read the writers they want. Yeah. The, the, the three, uh, that Cecilia Holland or Greg Bear or Terry Bisson are names that people are seeking out, and that is not conditional on how that fiction is delivered. In other words, if people think they want to read a, a, a Terry Bisson story, I don't think most of them are going to be concerned about whether they have a print copy or a printout or an electronic copy or a Kindle copy, because the fiction is what is of value. Uh, and that's not likely going to change. 
In other words, writers are still in demand. Yeah. And I, I don't. I don't think that you can generically replace uh, a, a Greg Bear or a Terry Bisson uh, with, with, with somebody new. So uh, there, there are two questions here. One is how do new writers deal with this? Um, but Terry, you're teaching at Clarion now, right? No. You're not teaching this. No. Story, but you've taught it before. Yeah, I have uh, yeah, before. Actually, I taught a workshop today, and I was, and we discussed that. Uh, I was. Yeah, these are not Clarion mm -hmm. students. They're mostly older than Clarion students. They're um, in their 40s, uh -huh. right? And uh, but they're all uh, people who like to write and work on it for years. They kind of pill around. They're not looking for a profession in the field. They're no. just kind of. They want to be published and stuff, right? They want to be published, but it's not. That's like, um, you know, um, that's not a. It's not a professional thing. It's a. It's oh, okay. So, yeah. uh, but I was asking them what are what are their ambitions? What are they trying to do? Why are they mm -hmm. working on this? Yeah, that's stuff? And mostly, it's. Uh, uh, they feel like these days uh, they're quite happy to be published online. You know. The little online magazines, but they want. I think there's a certain people want a gatekeeper. They they don't want yeah. to just publish their own stuff. I agree with what you said. There's not this, um, uh, you know, it's not so scandalous to be pub first, right? Self-published, but you want some kind of. I think people who go to workshops are looking for some kind of affirmation of their that it's okay. What they're doing is good enough, you know, and so. I think people want editors. I think there's a need for That's editors. what I'm saying. Yeah. I think the sense I get, and I was at the uh, Stoker Awards last weekend, and uh, Jonathan, I don't think you and I have talked since then. No, no. And a lot of very nice people there, and there are obviously some hugely successful writers there, like um, like Peter Straub and Joe Hill and, uh, and, and David Morrell. But uh, a lot of these short story writers, the younger writers, are aspiring to be published in print zines with... What an addition of three hundred to a thousand copies, yeah. and it seems to me for a young writer who might want to be in in one of these tiny uh, zines that have always been around, yeah. but being on the web might be a lot more attractive. You, you might have a chance that there are more than three hundred people who could see your story. Yeah, I don't think there's that much difference now. I don't. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and so I'm sort of I'm not looking to get started. And I'm still kind of old school. And it's like Cecilia is uh, hocking me because she, she said you should put your backlist up and do everything. If I were a young writer, 25 years old, that's what I'm kind of thinking. What would I be doing? Exactly. If I went to Clarion, well, when I got into the game, I was actually old when I got in. I was like almost 40 when I published my first book. But my idea and the reality then was you could be a mid-list science fiction writer, and if you had a bohemian lifestyle, you could, you could, get, away with you it, could yeah. get away with it. That's no longer remotely true, you know. And so I don't know what I would be, I don't know what I'd be doing. It, the whole thing puzzles me. It's like when Greg was talking about, uh, it's, like, it's like the Wild West, only the Wild West, if every state and territory had its own currency. It's 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 so it's so fragmented now. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy. It's incredibly chaotic, and then the problem is, it's almost like you have to do something else in order to make yourself well enough known to get your work, you know, paid attention to, unless you're lucky enough to to, to get through one of the already existing channels. Yeah, I, I think that Greg had a good point when you talk about somebody like Corey, for example, with with, with his huge web presence. Uh, I have no doubt that that affects the sales of his fiction and, and, and his name. That uh, there are many, many people who come to his. Yeah, Corey's Corey's great. I like his philosophy, I like, but he's an anomaly. Nobody else can. Well, that's true. Yeah. Not everybody can become a web celebrity like. No. That. No. And you know, I mean. But that's not John? No, I was just going to say, it, it, it makes you sort of wonder as you look around to, tr to try and work out where people are trying to break new writers in a way that's actually having some traction. Because, I mean, as much as I love the short fiction field, and it's, it's something that I'm actively involved in, you know, small, small magazines, whether they be electronic or print, aren't going to fundamentally break new writers. I mean, anything with a, a, you know, a readership of that, that's in the low hundreds is going to have a small yeah. amount of impact. Uh, at least if you're getting into the, you know, you know, out through a publisher in New York, you're going to talk to 
you have the potential of 10, 20,000 copies of something going out and people having some you know, sort of chance of finding it, at least for now, while there's still a overall book distribution mechanism until Barnes & Noble go the same way as Borders did. Um, but I mean, I'm not really sure how that's going to get out. I was interested that um, Nightshade, who I work with and who you guys both know, are publishing 13 first novels this year. I think it is 13 or 14. Who uh, says 13? Nightshade. Um, oh, yeah. And they plan to continue doing that. Uh, I was talking to Jason the other night, and as a matter of fact, Jeremy is, is downstairs now waiting for us in the bar. But uh, from for, for their point of view, that's a philosophy because, uh, and I don't know, as, as a business model, I don't know how it's going to work, frankly. The idea is with the first novel, you're, you're investing less, and you need, uh, you need less to make a profit and a return on it. Uh, and it's a very risky strategy, but I can't think of anybody else who's doing that many first novels as a total percentage of what they're doing, because yeah. they're doing something like uh, 48 books this year, mm-hmm. and what, a, a sixth of those are first novels, or, or no, no, what, a third of those are first novels. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and I know they're the same plan for next year and, and the year after. The theory being that the only way to uh, build a... Uh, a publishing company is to build writers, you know, to find writers and go out and publish them. Now, how you get to be found if you're sitting in a writer's workshop or if you're at home with a manuscript, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's a, that's an old that that was the original theory of publishing, right? You you build up mm-hmm. new writers, and one of them hits, and the other ten you carry, and and uh, you know you you hope that one hits. Right, exactly. You know, every once in a while. Um, and Nightshade's doing that. Tachyon, which mm-hmm. is another successful. Mm, yep. uh, they say they're uh, they basically quit doing that and gone with theme anthologies. And that seems how they're making uh, their books. Right. They're doing some. They're not doing first novels. They're doing some. Uh, they're, they're doing Lisa Goldstein's novel, for example. He's a very good writer who hasn't had. Yeah, uh, doing, and Peter Beagle. You know, Peter Beagle. Mm-hmm. not new writers. No, they're not doing new writers. Uh, so the idea that. Uh, and, and, of course, the New York publishers take very few chances on that. But I remember we were talking about Valentine books earlier, for example, and that was a publishing house that had a philosophy and an attitude, and uh, they did a lot of first novels back in the 50s, and some of them stuck. Oh, sure, yes. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that was the model. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. I've, um, I'm sort of looking at it. The feeling I get talking to... Um, uh, people uh, like in the workshop today who are doing short stories, working on technique and dialogue and stuff, how to write a short story. It, it seems to me almost a kind of a market. Uh, it's it's almost like poetry. The people who read it are other short story writers. And, and, mm. I, and maybe I'm way off, and there's a whole bunch of people that are hungry to read science fiction short stories and look at them away. But I, <clears throat> it feels a lot like uh, MF. Poetry. What's your sense, John? Because you're editing lots of anthologies and dealing with lots of short stories. I think there's a bigger market for short fiction than simply the people who write it, but I think Terry's exactly right to a point. I think the mass market for short fiction has long since dwindled and disappeared. You know, if even you know a reasonably successful writer is going to sell ten percent of the number of copies of a short story collection as they would have a novel, I would imagine, these days. So it very much is a, a niche market. On the other hand, it's been a niche market for a quarter of a century. So it's a really well-established niche market. I don't think it's dwindling really at all. I think it's it's fractured. It's become chaotic. It's hard to keep track of. Um, but it's it, it, okay, it pays as well as it ever did you know, in the last 25 years. You know, there isn't yeah. an omni anymore, but other than that, you know, it, it's, it's what it is. Yeah, I may be behind the times, maybe 25 years ago, but I, I, I mean, my first two short story collections were hardcover. Yeah. You know? And now I look at people like uh, Mike Swanwick or Jim Kelly or, or Karen Fowler who can't give away a short story collection. They have to go to a small press. A small beer, yeah. You yeah. know, uh, because it's, and I, Karen went through this whole thing where her agent wouldn't let her publish a short. You heard this. Story. I heard that story. Yeah, oh, yeah. Numbers down, you know. Yeah, short because that's yeah that was the concern of uh, any number of agents because of book scan, or because yeah. of Barnes and Nobles or Borders own computer. That if you have if you have a volume of short stories and you've been doing reasonably well in novels, in Karen's case, having written a bestseller, yeah. uh, Jane Austen Book Club. Why would you want to bring your 
uh, statistics down by having a short story collection. Right. Because, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's peculiar. And I think about it, but I, you know, I, if I were a young writer starting out, well, hell, I'd probably be in movies or media anyway. So. Mm, well. <laughs> But I, I don't know. But I mean, surely, yeah. if you're a young writer today, you would be sitting there writing short stories, getting them out to try and build something of a name for yourself to get the attention of the kind of people who might buy your novel, so you could get it into a distribution mechanism, start selling books, and building a career. I mean, isn't that really still the only you know normal market or average way to to to, to build a career? Got me. I don't really know. What I'm curious about is uh, what we were talking about with Greg a little bit, the, the 99 cent, the, the short story single, you know, the iTunes single. Yeah. Um, because when I talk to my students at, 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 at Roosevelt University who are not, by and large, uh, they're certainly not science fiction fans, and most of them aren't very heavy readers, but a lot of them say, I like to read short stories, by which they mean they don't want to make a heavy commitment. But they don't really know where to get short stories. I mean, if we think short stories are in bad shape uh, in the science fiction world, talk about a general reader. Uh, oh, no such thing. You just can't find a short story. Yeah. They're not going to pick the best American short stories. They want to try a short story here and there. There's no Saturday Evening Post or Colliers anymore selling uh, short stories. Uh, these are not students who are going to be reading The New York or The Atlantic. Which so, only carries one now. Anyway. The New York is only a one-story in issue. Yeah. And who's so, the New Yorker's... Uh, flagship short story writer, uh, David Sedaris. David Sedaris. He doesn't oh, yeah. call them short stories. Right. He, the word short story doesn't occur. No. So it's, uh, yeah. But I think there's a lot of interest, I suspect I should say that there's a lot of interest in shorter forms of fiction that could lead to the discovery of writers. Uh, yeah. But I, I don't know whether this happens. I mean, again, I defer to you, Jonathan, because you're reading magazines. You're reading FNSF and Asimov. Sure, and sure. And you sense that people are really getting careers started in those short fiction markets these days? Yeah, I think they do. I think, I mean, I'm not saying by any means that it's the only way. It is a way because, I mean, you, you do constantly see people who go straight into publishing novels. But, but I mean, uh, look, for example, Saladin Ahmed, who's a guy who's got a trilogy coming out from Daw starting in early, you know, early next year, uh, but was a Nebula nominee for short stories. He sold short stories here and there. He went on and, you know, he made enough of a name that editors were willing to read him in New York. Uh, I think the same thing happened with Nora Jemison, you know, where she'd sold short stories, people read them. Now, I'm not saying it's the, the only thing they did about their careers. I've not studied their careers in that kind of depth. But it's certainly still happening, and I suspect it'll continue to keep happening. Um, I will say, I mean, you're talking about the 99-cent single story kind of an idea, you know, that little that ebook. I'm really skeptical about those. I mean, really yep. skeptical. And the reason I'm skeptical is I've got no idea how anyone would find one. Um, well, my theory is this. Let's say you've read a, uh, um, oh, who's, who's a good example uh, of somebody uh, who's established a short story. Let, let's say it's 10 years ago in your Ted Chang. Okay. And people tend to be really struck by Ted Chang's story. And, and you want more, and it's going to take 10 years before Ted ever does another collection. So you go on iTunes, and you look for the next Ted Chang story, and you figure it's worth 99 cents. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Or even a dollar. But, but but okay. First of all, you're, you know, would you go on iTunes to look for the next Ted Chang story? I mean, and that assumes that you've read the Ted Chang story. You've had some way of discovering it. You know, uh, right. I, I stumbled across Peter Hamilton. Peter Hamilton's reasonably well known. Well, uh -huh. he's, he's got a short story collection coming out from Del Rey. So they've taken one of the original stories and put it up on the, as an ebook uh, on Amazon for, in fact, for free. But there's uh -huh. no way to find it unless you happen to see somebody else pointing you to it. You know, it, you wouldn't go and search for, you know, there, there's no mechanism yet. I'm not saying there won't be, but there's no mechanism. And, and also, think about this. I mean, there is an enormous number of ebooks being published, right? Uh, there's a, a, a staggering volume of short fiction. If you're talking about a, a single story ebook, how many more of those are going to be produced in any given moment to, to, to stand there in front of you as a plethora of stuff? Now, I don't think it can't work, but I just can't yet see the mechanism to get it to, to, to people so they can talk about it and know about it and be interested. Uh, isn't that the same question that was being asked about the concept of iTunes uh, you know, a few years ago or the uh, concept of Napster when it first started, that there's just a flood of stuff and nobody will know how to find anything? And it turns out it sorted itself out. 
Yeah, yeah, except, except still, even with music, the people who mostly sell music are the people who were selling music before. You know, people who go through the normal music channels and get promoted and built up. And I was listening to a long thing about this, about the future of the record label, and people talking yeah. about how you can now see that there's actually an enormous future for record labels because uh, artists still need record labels to do a lot of that promotion and marketing and everything else. Just as you were saying earlier about writers and ebooks and the value of editing and marketing and everything else for them coming through, say, a New York publisher. Um, and there will always be people who find other ways around it. You only have to look at, say, an Amanda Palmer uh, and her way of going out into the world and you know, selling her. She, 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 you know, Amanda, actually, is the musical equivalent of Cory Doctorow in some ways. In some ways. You know? And I can see how you're like, if you're willing to be one of those people, then you can make it happen. But other than that... Sorry? I didn't get that last thing you said. Hello? She's a singer. She's a performer. She's a cabaret performer. That does essentially, what's the best way to describe it? Some of her performances are like Weimar German uh, cabaret music in a very contemporary way. Uh, but the point is, she's managed her web image very well, as has Corey. Uh, I think there is a problem that there's not a quote-unquote viral, not that I'm aware of, there's not a kind of viral website like YouTube, the equivalent uh, for, for literature. No. I, I, I don't know that there, you know, there, there are not people putting millions of short stories up on YouTube every day. No. Uh, and no. I don't think there's a, a, a website that does the equivalent, but I may be mistaken because, Terry, don't feel bad. I, I'm, I feel like I'm two weeks behind every, uh, at least two weeks behind every time. Uh, Mention like so. Oh, I'm further behind. Than uh, uh, and also, well, I, I wonder. You're talking about some stuff. And like, you, you know, you mentioned your first, your your collections, Terry, you know, with uh, Bears Discover Fire. I mean, I wonder, did Bears Discover Fire, when it came out in hardcover, sell any differently from Karen Fowler's collection that came out from uh, Small Beer this year? Uh, no, I don't think it sold well. But at that point, uh, New York publishers thought that they would. Well, this is my point. I mean, about that. After actually, Karen Collar's first collection, Artificial Things, was probably before Bears Discovered Fire. Yeah, no, right. And, and well, maybe, but uh, anyway. But but my point, but my point I'm getting at is that what would have been a, a middling to not very impressive uh, short story sale then, uh, now with a small beer attack, and it's probably looking like a pretty good short story collection. Yeah. Sale. Same numbers. Yeah, but it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, it. Uh, yeah, no, it it, uh, it does all that, but what it doesn't do is build uh, careers. It doesn't get your name out there. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we're talking about two different things. I think when I think of the, you know, uh, you know there are writers now who built their name and career through short stories. I'm thinking of uh, Bacigalupi or Kelly yeah. Green, you know, right? Who came up through short stories and. Um, um, I don't know. I sort of went the other way. I published a novel before I ever did a short story. So I didn't, my, my thing's kind of anomalous. But you have, I mean, in the short story field, I mean, you've got, I think I think we can agree one certifiable classic. And it seems like I think everybody who reads science fiction knows Bears Discover Fire. Sure. Well, so, and, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, uh, Maybe I, I don't know. I, I just don't know how the new thing works. And, you know, I talked to Cecilia and she says, I don't know how it works either, but it's great for us and it's bad for them. Let's go. You know, and let's <laughs> go. And, and well, what about parts of the universe? I mean, I want to put all that stuff, I want to take, and plus I have novellas. I want to uh, figure out a way to get my backlist online. Exactly. And I don't know if I should do some of it with. Electric story and some with uh, Curtis and John Douglas, uh -huh. or should I do it all myself in Kindle? I intend to do it because yeah. uh, you know, but I don't know how to do it. And and you know, uh, John, uh, who Kindle is a they give you seventy percent. You know, you go with uh, with John and Curtis and you get twenty five percent. Right. You go here. What? There's no. It's the Wild West, man. I don't even have a and I have to say, that from the perspective of people who are supposed to be gatekeepers, it's hard to keep track of stuff. Or at least people who are involved. I mean, I only found I, I've I've been reading your work since I encountered back uh, in Omni back at the very beginning. 
but I didn't find out about TVA Baby, the collection, until two weeks ago. You know, and you're oh. sort of, I mean, how do you find out about these things? I only just realized I'd not heard this before. I'm looking at your website now that you have a novel coming out next next year, early next year, from Overlook. Yeah. Well, it's just I'm not good at publicity. So, I, you know, and I don't have a publisher now, really, except PM, who's, uh, you know, um, it's not a big deal. So well, the PM books are very attractive uh, yeah. books. They have, a point, they have a political point of view, which almost no publishers do anymore. Yeah, no, I'm not. All I'm saying is uh, I, I'm not a good example because I, I'm not um, – I don't really uh, do this stuff, you yeah. know. Um, so, and I'm not some young person who's. Uh, I mean, I'm always greedy, and I'd love to get ahead, <laughs> but I'm not driven to do it. Like right. you know, yeah. some some thirty year old. So I, I, you know, I'm not a good example. I, I, the example of me is somebody who's young and just starting out and has something to say. And how do they do it? I don't have a clue. The other end of it is like what Greg. And all of us are talking about is mm. you've got these geezers and they got this big back list right. and what do they do with it? You know, right. and that's a, they're they're probably two separate questions. Yeah. Well, one of the things Jonathan and I have talked about this a couple of times. When you go back and look at what we think of as classic science fiction novels of the fifties or, or even some of the sixties, and how many of them are simply not in print? They're simply not yeah. available. Oh yeah, it's true. And that what Richard Curtis is doing, and mm. I think that's what. Uh, Malcolm Edwards is trying to do in England. In England you know? yeah. um, and I, that's clearly going to happen. So that's great. You yeah. know? And I'd like to see all of uh, since as a, mostly a short story writer, I'd like to see. I've always felt like the internet was great because uh, people teaching the short story could include one of mine without buying the book. You know, they right. could just pick out a short story. But I don't even know if that's happened yet. But I think no, it will. It will. It's partly happened, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every year, uh, when the Hugo Award nominations come out, uh, how long has this been going on, uh, Jonathan? Just immediately, all the uh, nominated short fiction is is available on the web, at least at the very least for members of the uh, World yeah. Science. Oh, that's been pretty much sure. Yeah, for a while now. Yeah. So that's that's not news Sorry. at all. We expect to see that. If we're going to vote for something for an award, we expect a free copy of it instantly on our computer. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, well, you won't believe this, Gary, but that's we're pretty much getting towards our our hour. So I thought we're never going to actually parse yet how a young writer is going to find his way into the future just yet. So we might wind it up and come back and have another knock at this. So don't run away. But, but, yeah, yeah, you have things to do. It's funny. I was tempted last uh, downstairs. I was tempted to get a couple of these young clarion people up here and ask, "What are you thinking? How do you think you can get a career started these days?" <laughs> they probably know more than we do. Well, you should go down and ask when you when, when we get off the line. Off the line. They do no more, no more than we do. Like I'm good friends with uh, Christopher Rowe. Yeah. A young writer from. He's a good uh, young writer. Yeah. yeah, good young writer. A couple weeks ago. And um, and in many ways, I feel like uh, in some and he acknowledges I was sort of a mentor to him. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But not really because we're uh, it, it's a whole different thing what he's trying to do and what I tried to do at uh, yeah. that age. It, you know, it's 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 different to me. The I don't know. I clearly I'm bemused. I'm not a, a okay. Let's yeah. Let's end up being. So yeah, we're going to go downstairs and find something to drink, and you've got errands to do. So I do indeed. So well, th well, thank you both. Thank you both for yep. for, for it, and uh, thank you, Greg. If you ever hear this again, it was great for you to come on. So, and we'll talk next week. All right, and we'll talk next week. I'll be at home again, I hope. Okay, Thanks. take care. Bye. All right, talk to you later.